I have every sympathy with anyone whose heart is sinking at this point. Um, I don't have much taste myself for polemic on behalf of the humanities, though I respect and I'm grateful to those who have to do it for us um, in certain political and economic circumstances. Um, I'm not always convinced that we're actually in those circumstances at the moment, and it's worth, worth noting that many of the most um, influential arguments we've heard in our own culture in recent months and years have been from America, perhaps most notably recently Martha Nussbaum. Someone said to me, and Patricia Williams to give her a name, at the beginning of this um, research project, she said to me, don't you think the humanities are best advocated for simply by doing them? I actually agree with that. So I should say at the outset that my interest in the subject is really that of an intellectual historian and a literary critic. In other words, I'm interested in the difficult processes by which we make a convincing language and a convincing set of arguments for the humanities. I'm a Victorianist by training, and nobody with that background, or indeed with any knowledge of that period, could look at our contemporary debates about the humanities and fail to notice that we are in terrain we have been in culturally before. Very many of the arguments that we now use on behalf of what we have since around 1940, on the American model really, called the humanities, um, are arguments that came out of Victorian efforts to defend the notion of a liberal education and a liberal culture. The pressures then, um, as now, as since, have tended to come from what they called political economy, though we tend to use different words, and especially from the pressure to make commensurable, sorry, to make incommensurable goods, so education, health, security, in some ways comparable. Now, I want to run through um, briefly and in very broad lines the arguments that are really each of them um, the subject of a chapter of the current book and then I'll focus in on one of them in particular. They're arguments that were pursued in the Victorian period and that have often been rehearsed and refined and debated since. One assumption I'm making at the outset is that any defence of the humanities has to be composite. Um, it should be attentive to the kind of circumstances that prompt it, so the particular exigencies of the moment, but I think any attempt to defend us in broad terms really is going to have to be a composite of different recognitions of different kinds of argument that work for different contexts. So I'm isolating on the basis of the reading of these Victorian writers five principal arguments. One of them I'm going to give a bit of a duffing up to, but the others I think are useful in certain contexts. Right, the first concerns what is intellectually distinctive about the humanities. And that is the claim that the humanities' special concern is with interpreting and evaluating cultural practices in ways that have to be partly subjective. Arnold, Newman, Huxley, Ruskin, Mill all make arguments along that kind of line. I think, as I've already said, that it is broadly right, but the problems begin when that kind of argument starts to accrue to itself comparisons with what we think other disciplines do. We have a notorious example, which has been mentioned twice already today, in Snow versus Leavis. Um, in the earlier 20th century. I have some worries as we look at the shape of arguments now that we may start to repeat those arguments with what Snow himself predicted, which is that the social sciences would start to stand in place of the sciences and be seen to oppose the sciences and the humanities in some way, mainly because they're sometimes seen as the author of our current cultures of public accounting. I think that would be a very bad direction in which our public arguments might go, so I hope we can avoid it. It just makes for very bad claims about what we do and what other people do. The second claim is that the humanities are admirably useless, that they are at a remove from or require us to revise our normal accounts of use value. That's the argument that I'm going to come back to. It's a common line of opposition to political economists from Adam Smith onwards. Um, as I say, I'll return to it in a minute. The third claim has been in the news even in the last two weeks, and that is the claim that the humanities have a vital contribution to make to our happiness as individuals and as societies, that has to be the least trusted line of defence, at least for people in the humanities at present. 
but it's evidently topical given the revival in certain quarters of the idea that politicians should interest themselves not just in a governing our democracy, but in making us happier. The most famous and the most subtle of Victorian examples of this line of argument is, of course, John Stuart Mill's attempt in his autobiography um, to show how reading literature rescued him from the aridity of utilitarian education. One has to say a completely exceptional utilitarian education. He doesn't say literature makes you happy. Indeed, he comes rather closer to saying that literature, and what he meant by the literature was really the humanities in a much broader sense. He comes rather closer to saying that literature helps you to be conscious of the ways in which you are not happy and are likely <laughs> never to be happy. Um, he also says, um, he tells you a great deal through that reading of why aiming at happiness as your goal may be going about things the wrong way. In other words, you can only be happy if you aim at other ends, such as the happiness of others, or the improvement of mankind, or some art or pursuit for its own sake. So use the happiness argument by all means, but please don't turn it into the humanities make you happy. Right, the one I want to give a slightly harder time to, because I've seen it creeping into our debates a great deal in the last year. I have real doubts about it. Um, I hope I can encourage you to as well. It's the most ambitious political claim for the humanities, and it says that democracy needs us. It comes out of the liberal arts tradition in America in most recent years, decades indeed, but it has longer roots in Socrates' claim to be a sort of gadfly given to the polis. Now, in practice, it means, as American liberal arts education interprets it, that we should educate our children in history, in principles of economics, in languages, in comparative culture and comparative religion. But above all, we need to teach them to be good, critical judges of what our politicians and cultural leaders say to us. We need to be able to tell true, claims from bogus ones and good arguments from bad ones. Now that's a very attractive argument for an American liberal arts education. It's an attractive argument for us, it would seem, not least because it makes us sound so important in the humanities. The reasons I think we should be wary of it are, much too briefly, among its problems are that it's not clear that the skills it's asking us to value are specific to the humanities. I think any work in any field which isn't conscious of what makes a true, what makes a bogus claim, or what makes for a persuasive and unpersuasive argument is unlikely to be a good argument of its kind or in its discipline. It's also not clear why it should apply to a higher education. It's a very good argument, as I say, for a liberal primary education, for things that every child with a basic level of education should have instilled in them. Um, why it should go higher up the chain, I think, is not clear, and it would seem to point in the direction of a guardianship model of the humanities, about which most of us would have proper doubts. Finally, it's not quite clear why the government should pay for it. Why should it want universities to be a plague of gadflies at its flank? We might think it should want it, but um, would they? Now, all of these arguments are consequentialist. They tell us that the humanities have value because they have good effects in the world by their impact on our cultural life or our happiness or our political culture. Every one of the Victorian critics I'm looking at would tell you that if you do not believe in the value of the objects and the educational practices that you are defending for their own sake, your argument is doomed to fail. I was delighted to see um, that the Minister of Higher Education has taken that line. <laughs> it's difficult territory. Um, it seems to require us to get to grips with awkward um, and hard philosophical arguments about what is or is not intrinsic value, but that is territory that I think we need to get into if we're going to be persuasive to ourselves and to the wider public. So having given you the very broad brush arguments, each of which needs at least a chapter to pull out its intricacies, let me tell you a little bit about what this might mean at the level of research rather than um, large posturing. <laughs> I had hoped to have a photograph um, for you at the moment of a manuscript 
Um, I don't. I have its author instead. So we've gone from the Minister for Higher Education and Science today to one of the higher-ranking higher civil servants for the Department of Education in the 1860s, Matthew Arnold. Um, I'll have to ask you to imagine the manuscript. The reason I don't have it is that Balliol College Library is in the process of moving its manuscripts to a new depository in St Cross building, St Cross, the old St Cross Church. They have a dripping tap, and it seems more important to rescue the manuscript in its box than to ask for it to be extracted, exposed to water, and thus destroy one of the great documents in the history of the humanities on a day we're supposed to be um, promoting and advocating for them. Right. Um, so please imagine several sheets of folded paper, roughly the size of A5, folded over A4, headed with a departmental letterhead, Education Department, Council Office, Downing Street, London. This is a manuscript of Culture and Its Enemies from 1867, the last lecture that Matthew Arnold delivered when he was Professor of Poetry at Oxford. And yes, it was written on government letterhead. Arnold was for 35 years an inspector of schools, but increasingly given higher civil service responsibilities for reporting on education at all levels. He wrote Culture and Anarchy immediately after two and a half years spent writing a report, putting it together, um, travelling extensively on the continent um, to tell Britain about secondary and higher education there and to recommend uh, reform for the British system. The Oxford Lecture, um, famous of course to us in its form, rewritten slightly for Culture and Anarchy, reflects Arnold's growing understanding as he worked on that report that instrumental thinking about the use value of education obscures or distorts what a good education should be about. He wasn't an anti-instrumentalist across the board. He understood the need to instill useful skills at primary level especially, but the higher one goes up the educational ladder, he thought, the less use value matters. Education, he thought, and much of this will be very familiar to you, should enable a person to know him or herself and the world. In the first instance, knowing him or herself, yourself, is the work of the humanities, knowing the world is the work of the sciences, but he thought any education that didn't give you both was not really worth having. The interesting thing to me as a literary critic about going back to the manuscript and reading it in the light of the language of the report is that the Culture and Anarchy text doesn't repeat the overtly polemical thrust against use value that people who had read Arnold in the newspapers and seen him working in the Department of Education had become used to. He had been an extremely brave opponent, really, of his superior at the Education Office, a Liberal MP by the name of Robert Lowe, who's gone down in history for the introduction of payment by results to the British education system, and who is actually himself much more worth looking at than has been the case. Um, he, had a, he was bullied at Winchester. Better get my schools right, he said Westminster. Um, he was albino, and he carried onto his later life a lasting concern for the damage done by class and by inequities in the social system to the children of education. So as often when we find ourselves having debates about what matters in education, what he was trying to do is to pull the bottom up and the problems then start when you see what happens higher up the scale if you make that your criteria for everyone. Now in the manuscript one can see Arnold, you really will have to imagine hard, imagine a manuscript where each time a man strikes the word use, pretty much every time, he strikes it out and then tries very, very hard for other words. But because the language of use comes so easily to hand, he finds it very difficult to do. So you get use scrubbed out, service, a more Christianized word put in, scrubbed out because it doesn't quite work, use reintroduced. There are many cases where he just manages to get it out by putting another term in its place. There are also important instances where he uses it flagrantly against the way in which you would expect use value to occur in an educational document. So some famous definitions of culture include from him that we should use ideas freely, nourished but not bound by them. 
There's just one area, briefly, of the language of cultural anarchy that I want to go into here, um, because it doesn't seem to me to have played a role in the debates of the kind that I, for one, would like to see it play. If people remember one thing about cultural anarchy or about Arnold, they tend to remember that phrase, sweetness and light. It's become risible. It's part of his definition of the purpose of culture being to make us all live in an atmosphere of sweetness and light. Uh, it smacks, as Stephen Collini has said, to borrow a phrase, um, of the anemia of a wet do-gooder, something along those lines. Now, one thing that hasn't been recognised, I think, is that Arnold himself knew that. And if you go back and do some kind of reception work on cultural anarchy, go through the letters particularly, you can see him in subsequent years increasingly embarrassed by it and wanting to use that phrase with a kind of ironic twist on it. A lovely couple of descriptions of meeting Disraeli at two successive dinner parties over the years, where Disraeli just thinks it's a fantastic thing that Arnold has become a classic in his own lifetime and has put this language into currency. Arnold's view of that is that it's kind of typically Bulgarian of Disraeli that he would take that line <laughs> and that we should be moving on by now. What I want to take from that is something that Arnold knew and indeed I think all the, the Victorian public moralists who have remained in our vocabulary, something they all knew about what it takes to mount a good defence of the humanities. And that is the fact that an ineliminable aspect of what we do is that we find ourselves at odds with any cast of mind that offers to define our value in set and lasting measures. And that doesn't mean we are doomed to be impolitic or we're doomed to special pleading, but it does mean that there's necessarily going to be a conflict of understanding between the bureaucratic accountant and the defender of a liberal view of a humane education. It is, I think, encouraging that one of the great statements of that view in British history came out of Downing Street and was written on government letterhead. Okay, thank you.